The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Do you guys want to know something insane? I mean, this legit blew my mind when I learned this. Oh, sorry. Uh, for Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, this is The Opus. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, season 10. So, I was just starting my research for this season of The Opus. Bouncing around on the internet, reading articles, watching interviews, listening to music. Like million tabs open in my browser. And I research... I like to do it in a really chaotic way at first. You know, even though I'm working on assignment, I like to approach it like I'm just digging through the subject for fun, you know? Let the internet wash over me and then sort of wade through the tabs and notes the next day to formulate my angles. So I'm clicking like a madman, one link leads to another, and then I learn, okay, maybe some of you knew this. I didn't know this. Most of the people that I talked to for this podcast didn't know this, but when I learned this, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. Before 1990, there was no such thing as the Billboard hip-hop and R&B charts. Okay, for those of you that don't know, Billboard. Billboard magazine, it's the source for charting record sales in America. When someone says they have the number one record in America, it means they have the number one record according to Billboard. There's more than one Billboard chart. There's the Billboard 200, which is the top 200 full-length albums. That's the big one. Then there's the Billboard Hot 100, which is for singles. Uh, That's the other big one. And then there's all these different charts for genres and different categories. There's the rock chart, there's Latin chart, the bluegrass chart, the dance electronic chart, jazz albums, traditional jazz albums, contemporary jazz albums, smooth jazz singles. When it comes to charting record sales in America... 
they are it. And today, there's the hip-hop and R&B charts. But if you put out a hip-hop or an R&B song before 1990, do you know what chart that music would fall under? Hot Black Singles. <laughs> yeah, Hot Black Singles. If you put out a hit R&B full-length album, it would go under Hot Black Albums. But if you had a number one R&B song in America, you had the number one Hot Black Single. Which blows my mind. That is insane. I mean, like, you guys are all sitting around trying to figure out a genre for this chart, and you come up with Hot Black Singles? I mean, that sounds like a dating site. And this isn't the 40s. This was up until 1990. So when Michael Jackson put out Rock With You, that was the top of hot black singles. Luther Vandross, never too much, hot black singles. De La Soul's Me, Myself, and I. Even into 1990, Belle Biddle's Poison, MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, Nelson Mandela was being released from prison, and the Billboard charts were still literally divided by race. Weird little side note, every so often you'd have someone like Hall & Oates on the top of the Hot Black Singles charts, but for all intents and purposes, if you were a black person making music in America that wasn't jazz, this is where your record would go. I could not stop thinking about this. I still can't stop thinking about this. I have been telling everybody that I encounter, every Zoom conference I've been on, because it all just seems so bizarre. Like, that? Really? Hot black singles? So, I had to talk to somebody about it. Because it really, like, it has me at a loss for words. <laughs> That's not going to make for a very good podcast. And thankfully, I came across Chris Malamphy. Chris is a music writer. But he's much more specialized than that. Chris is a chart historian. A chart analyst. He writes a column for Slate called Wisest Song Number One, and he hosts this great podcast called Hit Parade that's all about number one hits and chart history. He's also one of the handful of rock critics that's a voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you want to talk about the history of the Billboard charts, if you want to talk about hot black singles, <laughs> not that way, Chris is the guy. It sounds like that literally every time I, I post this somewhere on social media, one of my African-American friends says, yeah, um, that the phrase hot black singles means something different to me. I got to tell you. <laughs> it's crazy. And you know who did it? Basically, the person who's mostly responsible for that name, which now provokes laughter in both white and black audiences, was a guy named Nelson George, who's one of the most esteemed critics on the history of soul and R&B and black music in general. Uh, he's one of my favorite critics. He worked for Billboard in the 80s. And I, I, if you dig around in 1982 when they made the name change switch, I believe they were coming out of one of their periods where it was called Hot Soul Singles. Because that's another funny thing about black music is that it has all these sobriquets. Everybody seems to have finally landed on R&B for the sung version as opposed to hip hop, which is you know the, the rap or rap based version. So R&B is finally kind of won out but there was a period where it was an R&B. There was a period, especially in the 70s, when soul was the preferred term. And basically in 1982, Nelson George, who's kind of this why beat around the bush kind of guy, is like, fuck it, let's call it Hot Black Singles. So it was called Hot Soul Singles. Then Nelson George comes along 
looks around and says, let's stop pretending. Call it what it is. The black music chart. You have the Billboard Hot 100, that's for pop, rock, whatever else. White people music. And this is the chart for black people's music. Hot black singles. And that's exactly what it was. You run down the list of each chart. You know, on the Billboard Hot 100, you have Phil Collins and Tears for Fears and Sting and Foreigner. And Hot Black Singles, you have Rick James and Teddy Pendergrass and Freddie Jackson and Anita Baker. The wall between those two charts could not be more clear. Now, there are a lot of factors at play here that shape this. But at the core of it, you have the music that white America listens to and the music that black America listens to. And there is almost no crossover between them. By contrast, the top songs of the year on the Billboard Hot 100 and the Billboard Hip Hop and R&B charts now are almost in lockstep with each other. Both started the year with Roddy Rich's The Box. Then they both had The Weeknd. Then they both had Drake's Tusi Slide. Then Travis Scott with Kid Cudi. Then Doja Cat with Nicki Minaj, which didn't age very well. And then they finally break last week, May 23rd, when Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber took the top of the pop charts and Doja Cat stayed at the top of the hip-hop and R&B charts. Today, the Billboard pop charts are dominated by the Billboard hip-hop and R&B charts. Today, the charts are such a mixture of races and languages, they might as well be the same charts. And this would be unthinkable back in the 80s, back when the hip-hop and R&B charts were still called Hot Black Singles which is what makes this album we're covering this season so exceptional. Because when you take in the landscape of popular music back in the 1980s, when you see just how segregated the music charts and music listeners were back then, it makes the achievements of this album that much more amazing and that much more important. Because there is no way the Billboard charts would look like they do now. And this glorious melting pot of races and genders if it wasn't for one woman. One woman and her 1985 self-titled debut. If it wasn't for the voice of all voices. If it wasn't for the queen herself, Whitney Houston. important to understand the landscape of popular music of the 1980s. Nelson George and Billboard's move to call what would become the hip-hop and R&B charts hot black singles and hot black albums because it couldn't be more different now. We live in the era of Lil Nas X, Drake, Khaled, Travis Scott, Lizzo, Beyonce. We live in the era of Beyonce. And sure, we also live in the era of Taylor Swift and Post Malone and Ed Sheeran, but when you look at the Billboard charts today... They are wildly diverse compared to back then. You know, the top 200 and the Hot 100 single charts, the big pop charts back in the 80s, aside from Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, and Prince, were almost all white people. And the other thing you have to remember about this moment is that for black women in particular, 
This is all kind of unprecedented. We're back with Chris Malanfi. You think about the legends among Black women prior to the 1980s. Think of Aretha Franklin, obviously. Think of Whitney's cousin, Dionne Warwick, Roberta Flack, Donna Summer. These are all legends, but none of them have experienced the level of massive crossover, consistent crossover with both Black and white audiences that Whitney enjoys starting in 1985. This is a whole other level. Even Donna Summer, who, you know, dominated the radio in 1979 with the Bad Girls album and all of its singles, even she did not experience the heights Whitney did. And this album, Whitney Houston, this self-titled 85 album, winds up the number one album of the entire year of 1986. Um, No black woman had ever done that before. Zip, zilch, zero. Not Aretha, not Dion, not Roberta, not Donna, none. That is some hard data right there. The wall between the pop charts and the black music charts was so real, so thick, so tall, that even Aretha couldn't break it down. And the only men that could do it were Lionel Richie, Prince, and Michael Jackson, which, Jesus, that is a trio. That's a holy trinity right there. And it's important to note that by the time these three men made their big crossover into the pop charts, they'd all been around. They'd put out multiple albums. Lionel Richie put out solo records, and before that, records with the Commodores. Prince had put out five records before Purple Rain went to number one. And Michael Jackson put out so many records with the Jackson 5, plus five solo records before Thriller hit number one. They were legacy artists who spent their entire career working up to what Whitney Houston did at 22 years old on her very first record. And this is important because Whitney's story is so complicated. It's so cloudy. There's so much attention paid to the end of her life that I think we've lost sight of how our career began. What an impact she made. Before we even listen to the music, you can just look at the numbers and you can see that this record was a pivot point for music. Now, there are people out there that will discount all of her work because she's a pop star. And there are people that are listening to all this talk about sales figures and chart positions and they'll say, sales don't make great music. Personally, I think both of those views are a bit uh, obtuse. But just look at the company she's keeping. Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, Prince. Prince, for God's sake. I'm a sports fan. And sports, in the last 10 years, has become insufferable with stats and analytics. Since we figured out how to calculate all these numbers, we've gone crazy with these numbers, and now we get these stats that, like, he's the first person to score over 20 points from the three-point line in the third quarter in Utah in the month of November while wearing baby blue. Well, most of these stats are absurd, and we're kind of drowning in them, ESPN. Some of them are actually very important. Some of them really signify something. And if you're ever curious if a stat really means anything, a good rule of thumb is just look at the other people that are on the list. If it's a bunch of bench warmers and scrubs and washouts, then that stat probably isn't worth paying attention to. But if you look around and it's Jordan and it's Magic and LeBron, then it's probably a big deal. 
You can't tell me that these numbers don't mean something. Because look at the company she's keeping. Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, and Prince. And yet, she never gets mentioned alongside those artists. But if you look at pop music today, there are a lot of people in the top spots who are Whitney Disciples or perhaps even Whitney Ripoffs. You can look at where we are today, what the Billboard charts look like now, and you can trace it all back to 1985 and Whitney. There's no way for a record like this to have been appreciated by critics because Whitney set the standard. And because Whitney set the standard, that's why this record was ahead of its time. This is Britt Julius. She's a music columnist with the Chicago Tribune. She also has bylines with the New York Times, The Guardian, Vice. She grew up listening to Whitney. She's a great writer. Time allowed us to understand and appreciate her as an artist. I think a contemporary example that I can think of is someone like Beyonce, who now receives all of this critical praise, right? And everything she does is amazing. And, and as a Beyonce fan, I'm obviously going to agree with that, you know, but people weren't necessarily like approaching her first album, Dangerously in Love, like that, or I Am Sasha Fierce, or, you know, she really spent a lot of time in the, the public eye, you know, 20 plus years for her to now receive this revered status and in, in culture. For some artists, especially artists who are, you know, sort of working it within genres of like pop and R&B, it really does just take them longer to sort of, you know, get that critical acclaim because those genres are often dismissed from the onset. And sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile with the fact that pop music can also be revolutionary, but it can be. And I think this record is a perfect example of the ways in which pop music can really transform what is happening in our culture and what we appreciate in our culture. There's one thing that we've learned in 10 seasons of the Opus. is that a great album is never the work of one single person. There's always a team. There's always someone else just off mic helping the masterpiece come to life. And you cannot talk about Whitney Houston without talking about Clive Davis. Clive Davis is the head of Arista Records. He's the man who quite famously discovered a teenage Whitney in a New York nightclub singing Greatest Love of All. Clive Davis deserves a lot of credit because he knew the landscape of music at the time. He was aware of the great divide between black and white music fans. and He saw Whitney as the one to make that leap, to make that crossover. And he worked with her. He found the right musicians. He was the architect of the way the album was rolled out and sounded and marketed. There would be no Whitney without Clive Davis, that is for sure. But... There's a tendency, especially with female artists, and even more so with black female artists, to perhaps give too much credit to the man behind the scenes, 
which in turn discounts the work of the artists themselves. I don't want to take anything away from Clive Davis because he saw that the impossible was possible with Whitney. His vision and his faith in her was incredible. But at the end of the day, the history of pop music is littered with well-packaged, well-marketed, manicured artists who never came close to what Whitney did. And this is why you can't discount her work. Whitney is not just a pop star. There are a lot of pop stars, but very few of them were able to change the cultural landscape the way Whitney did. I think it's a similar conversation that people have when you think about, quote-unquote, black movies, right? This is Brandon Tinsley. He's a national political writer for CNN, where he covers the intersection of culture and politics. He's also working on a book about Whitney Houston, and he wrote this fantastic piece of The Atlantic called Whitney Houston and the Persistent Perils of the Mainstream. I could have done a whole season with just Brandon alone. He is such a great source of information on Whitney. When a movie like Get Out comes out, and it does extremely well, like it's nominated and wins all these different prestigious awards, you know, it's not only like, oh, great, we're recognizing great art. It's also the sort of permission to keep creating this sort of art and to slowly empower and bring in more Black artists, Black creators. And so, you know, I really, I'm going to be cynical and say, like, I do not really think that, was it just Whitney? You know, maybe it probably, it certainly wasn't just Whitney, but if Whitney Houston had not broken the ground that she did, if she hadn't proved that someone with her talent, someone with her looks, someone with her voice could sell to a mass audience. I think the people who are, you know, at the top, the music industry top brass, I think they would have probably been much more reluctant to keep investing and seeking out these sorts of artists. That comparison to the wave of black film that followed the success of Jordan Peele's Get Out is so spot on. Hollywood never put big money into black films because they just decided, for whatever reason, that there was no money to be made there. But then Get Out comes along, it's the sensation that it is, and it changes everything. And though Black Panther was already in the works of being made, I would bet the farm on the fact that it got a much bigger push because of the success of Get Out. You see this every step of the way, whenever there's any kind of cultural integration. Once that money starts to be made, the people at the top, finally start to recognize all the talented people of color that have been just sitting there right under their nose waiting for a chance. And then the power starts to follow on its heels. Culture moved at a glacial pace in Hollywood till Get Out comes and makes all that crossover money. And now finally, things are starting to change. LeBron James doesn't have all the power that he has in our culture today without Michael Jordan selling a trillion dollars in sneakers first. And you don't get Mariah and Brandy or Celine Dion and Alicia Keys and Jennifer Hudson and Lady Gaga or Beyonce without Whitney Houston selling all those records back in 1985. Because if she didn't make that crossover, she probably would have just been relegated to hot black singles for the rest of her life. And who knows where we would be today. That's one of the things that I love when you hear Black artists talk amongst one another. We're back with Brendan Tensley. There is this very personal recognition of lineage that I don't think always exists in a way when non-Black artists talk. I think 
you know, you talk to someone like Beyonce, I think she would 100% be one of the first people to say, I'm standing on the shoulders of towering Black musicians before me. There is a very profound recognition of the work that came before you, of the work that people had to put in and the sacrifices that people made in order for society to get to where it is today. And I think that absolutely holds in Whitney Houston's case as well. So do you think without Whitney's debut, without it being the success that it was, without it selling all the records that it sold, is there a Beyonce? Is there a Lizzo? No. <laughs> no. When he busted the door wide open. This is Sophia Ayers. She's a rapper, a singer, a DJ. She's made music with Prince and Lizzo, and she works full-time as Lizzo's DJ as well. I wanted to talk to her, one, because she has a delight to talk to, but two, she has a deep knowledge of pop, rap, R&B music, past, present, and future. And I think about, like, you know, when Beyonce made Lemonade, right? That was a dialogue that me and the girls were having, like, damn, like, Beyonce could have never came out the gate releasing Lemonade. She had to earn that. If she, had, she came out the gate with Lemonade, she wouldn't be Beyonce. She strategically put out Lemonade at that time, like making it completely all Black women. Everyone in the video was a Black woman. Everything was so amazing for Black women at that time. But we, we talk about like, yeah, imagine if, if Beyonce came out with that, we shouldn't be Beyonce today. And I think about Whitney, like, a lot of people wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Whitney. And you're right, Whitney broke down all the barriers for people like, I think Mariah to exist and to be like Celine Dion to exist. And, and, and you can talk about Beyonce too, but if you wanted to, really any black woman that came and, and had power, Whitney definitely was a part of it. You know? People don't give enough credit to pop culture. Yeah, I get in this argument a lot with my artist friends about the importance of sports. They see the beer ads, the jet flyovers, the cheerleaders, the absurd parts. But what they miss is how it moves the needle. You can't overstate what Jackie Robinson did for civil rights by being the first black man in the major leagues. And then today, we're living in a moment of change that's being ushered forward by people like Jordan Peele and Beyonce and Colin Kaepernick. These people are making changes to our culture, to our conversation about culture, just by making moves in pop culture. Everyone knows Whitney's voice. It is undeniable. And trust me, we're going to get to that in a later episode. But I think people overlook her impact on our society. She made the change that opened the door for so many artists to follow. And she did that with this debut record. She did that by crossing over, breaking down the barrier that stood in front of hot black singles. She did that with pop music. Whitney benefited from like Michael and Lionel and all of them doing what they did. But I think that she was conscious of a bigger world. 
This is Bartiz Strange, super exciting and inventive musician. He just made a fantastic record reinterpreting songs of the National called Say Goodbye to Pretty Boy. And it was so good that when the National heard it, they put it out on their own record label. Really interesting guy, son of a gospel singer turned opera singer. He played Division I college football at Oklahoma. He grew up on Whitney and now makes some of my favorite music out there. Whitney speaks to all these different people, whether you're gay, black, white, whatever. I don't know if those men spoke to necessarily all of those people at the same time. Like they could write a song that these communities could use, but it wasn't for, I don't know if it was for them. I feel like Whitney was putting out songs that was for everyone. This record, the thing that's powerful about it is, it's cool that you can write a song that's like, oh, yo, this is a song to show I black credit. This is a song to show that like, you know, I'm like a powerful woman. Here's a song that like white people may be into, but it's a different thing to put it all in one package. It's one thing to cut the singles and move them, but it's another thing to be like, this is the whole record. This is the whole complete idea. I feel like Michael did that with some records, but like, I think it's a little different when, when Whitney, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because when Whitney put out the first single for this record, it wasn't how will I know the pop single for the white people. It was Hold Me, the duet with Teddy Pendergrass, which, man, I love Teddy Pendergrass. Love TKO is incredible, but he wasn't going to help Whitney break into the pop charts, you know? You know what I'm saying? There's no duet with Michael McDonald or Hall & Oates to help introduce her to white people. But when Michael put out Thriller in 1982, the first single wasn't Billie Jean. It was The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney. Mm. Whitney didn't need a white person to talk to white people. Damn. Yeah. Like, Whitney could do it all on her own. Yeah. <laughs> and that was different. <laughs> yeah. I think, like, the fact that she didn't have, like, a white featuring vocalist or, you know, it was just like, boom. How will I know? <laughs> you know, like... Do you think she gets enough uh, respect for the changes that she made, you know, as a figure in civil rights? That's tough. I don't think that she, I don't think black women get enough respect for anything. Um, <laughs> and I don't think that people even really know how to like accurately quantify her impact. I don't think a white person could ever like quantify or, or qualify what she has done. It's kind of like trying to qualify the impact of Barack Obama being the president. <laughs> it's like you can look at all the policies and shit but like fuck that this was the first black president that's bigger than anything you know and Whitney was like that the things that she was able to accomplish I, I love what you're saying about Jackie Robinson people will say that he died because he, he was eventually broken there had never been a microscope like that on a person before there had never been anything that arisen to that level that had commanded that much attention on a group of people that had never had it before and this was almost an experiment to see like what happens when someone has that much attention and when that much like critical attention, like what can it do to you? And I think Whitney is another example of that. You know, unfortunately, a lot of her story is never going to be understood because of when it happened and how it happened. And that impacts the legacy, right? We'll never be able to quantify her impact. But I think you can see remnants of it in what's left. We have like this onslaught of incredible black women, women of color who are just like crushing it right now. We're like in a golden age, <laughs> you know, and like, and it's amazing to watch and it's, it sucks. I, I, I wish she, like Whitney could see it, you know, I'm sure she is seeing it, but you know, she's the blueprint for that shit. Mm -hmm. She's the blueprint. I'm 
And that is what we're going to cover in episode two of this season of the Opus. The blueprint. Her voice. The voice. How in the hell that skinny 22-year-old could pump out a voice with such power like that? We're going to talk about how it's done, the science behind it. We'll break down what makes her voice so special and how it completely changed what we expect of our pop stars today. But first, I want to thank my guests on this episode, writer Chris Malamphy, Britt Julius, and Brandon Tensley. Check out Chris's podcast, Hit Parade. It's a fantastic music history podcast. Follow Britt's work in the Chicago Tribune and be on the lookout for Brandon's book on Whitney. Finish that book, Brandon, because it's going to be good. I also want to thank Sophia Aris and Barty Strange, both great people and fantastic musicians. Look them up. Check out their songs. I wouldn't have them on if they weren't good. I also want to thank the homie Togman for letting me use his song, I'm So at the Start. You can find that on all them streaming sites. And speaking of streaming sites, if you haven't listened to Whitney's debut album, of course titled Whitney Houston, now's the time. The weather's getting nicer in America. Most of us can go out of our house now and you know, socially distant, socially responsible walks. Get out in the sun with your face mask on. Enjoy some pop music. I gotta tell you, you can keep I Wanna Dance With Somebody. For me, how will I know? Ten times the pop song. It is so damn good. And plus, Bartiz got me listening to someone for me in a totally different way now, too, because he was breaking down all chord progressions, and it's wild stuff. You're totally right, Bartiz. Feels like Thundercat. It's cool shit. But we'll get into all that next week. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, y'all. It's been a pleasure. For Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.